Friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. We're in a series called Five on Five, where we're looking at five lessons on the first five books of the Bible. Uh, This is our second uh, book that we're considering, the book of Exodus, and it is our last lesson. It's a passage that is not well known, but is tremendously important and instructive for us. So this sermon is entitled, A Lesson in Serving God. Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 to 11. I invite you, if you are able, to stand with me. We stand as an act of reverence and worship to God to read and receive his holy word. Hear it now, Exodus 31, beginning verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft, And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand And the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I've commanded you, they shall do. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And pray with me once more, dear friends. Gracious Father, we're thankful for Uh, this gathering uh, of people who've come um, to worship, to sing, um, to hear your word, uh, Lord. Uh, But we admit we come not always with um, a clear and and freed heart and mind. We come cluttered uh, with distractions and worries and fears. Uh, But I do pray, Lord, um, that in this hour that you would give to us an attentiveness that comes by your spirit uh, to eagerly listen Uh, to hear, to be shaped, to be challenged, uh, Lord, to be instructed, to be built up, to be blessed. Do this, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to start and look at our passage today by first asking a question for you to think about, for you to consider. The question is this, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? What does a Spirit-filled believer look like? Now, if you're coming from a charismatic background, you might approach a question in a certain way. Maybe you focus on passages like 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, and for you, a spirit-filled believer is one who manifests and exercises spiritual gifts, like prophecy and tongues. And maybe for some of you, you're coming from a more conservative background, and so when you think of being spirit-filled, you think of passages like Galatians 5. Spirit-filled believer uh, evidences the fruit of the Spirit. They bear the fruit of the Spirit. But in our passage today in Exodus 31, Moses, and this is the Old Testament, Moses describes for us what a spirit-filled person looks like, and it's very surprising. So what do we see happening in our passage today? I want to begin by instructing you, letting you know that Exodus 31 is the first occasion, 
the first time in the entire Bible where we're told a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the first occasion where a person is filled with the Spirit of God. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but you need to put yourself in an Israelite's sandals and kind of think about it from their perspective. You know, we live in a post-Pentecost era. We live in the age of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit indwells believers. It's part of our foundational, fundamental identity as Christians. The Spirit indwells us. But in the Old Testament, before Jesus came, before he ascended, before he spent, uh, sent his Spirit, that wasn't always the case. The Spirit of God didn't always indwell people. And so when you're reading through the scriptures, by the time we get to Exodus 31, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim, has only been mentioned twice. So from the start of Genesis to where we are in Exodus 31, for 80 chapters of Genesis and Exodus prior to chapter 31, the Spirit of God is only mentioned twice, once in Genesis 1, once in Genesis 41. And I mention that because that means when we get to our text today and we see the Spirit of God filling a person, this is a momentous occasion. Now, if you had to guess who the Spirit of God was filling, it would be a good guess to uh, think of somebody like Moses. I mean, Moses found himself in so many positions where he needed to be filled with the Spirit of God. He confronted Pharaoh and said, let my people go. He cast down the plagues upon Egypt. He led Israel across a sea where the waters were suspended. If any man needed the spirit of God working powerfully in him, it was Moses. He's the perfect candidate. And yet in our passage today, it's not Moses who receives the spirit. It's a man named Bezalel. Now, before you ask who the heck is Bezalel, we first need to consider what is happening in the context. Because when God chooses to send the Spirit, His Spirit upon this man, the circumstances aren't what you would imagine. The circumstances are rather uneventful. Uh, Exodus, in chapters 25 to 30, uh, tell you um, about God's instructions, God's blueprints, God's precise details on how His people are to build this movable tent, how to construct this building called the tabernacle. And honestly, if you're reading through Exodus, it's quite a difficult portion to read through Exodus uh, 25 to 30. It's repetitive. It's foreign. Frankly, we don't understand how it applies to our lives. Do you remember the movie, The Lion King? This is a place uh, called the Elephant Graveyard. And it refers to this part of the kingdom that's dry and it's a barren wasteland. And I think often that this section of Exodus is kind of like the Elephant Graveyard because it's where annual Bible reading plans go to die. A lot of people joke and say, oh, once you get to Exodus, you'll stop reading in your plan. That's not actually true. It's the second half of Exodus. Or it's not Leviticus where we stop. It's the second half of Exodus. Because Exodus is 40 chapters long. Chapters 1 to 20 is like a Marvel movie. I mean, there is action. There is suspense. There are the plagues. There is the leading out through the Red Sea. There's the manna from heaven. There's water from a rock. It's fast paced. It's action packed. The second half of Exodus are laws for Israel and the instructions to build the tabernacle. It's like going from watching an action thriller movie to then reading the ingredients on the back of a tube of toothpaste. It's a huge shift. Uh, everything slows down. So when you're reading through Exodus, you read Exodus 30, and it teaches you how to make a bronze basin and how to prepare oil and how to prepare 
incense. And you get to chapter 31 and it begins like this. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God. Now remember why this is so momentous. At this point in the Bible, you've only read about the Spirit of God twice. The first time was in creation. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim, was hovering over the face of the waters. And so whoever the Spirit of God is, the Spirit was at creation. And now he's filling a person? It's unbelievable. The second time you read about the spirit of God, there's a famine in the land and the famine is so severe, it threatens to kill many, many people. And in fact, if it kills that many people, then God's promise to this little nation called Israel, that promise is gonna break. And so everyone is frightened of this famine. And Pharaoh says this in Genesis 41, he says, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? He's talking about a man who's gonna come and be a savior who's going to save Israel, save the land from the famine. And so from Genesis 41 on, you're thinking, okay, who, who is this mighty man in whom the Spirit of God is going to come dwell? What kind of man will he be? Will he be a priest in Israel? Will he be a prophet among the people? Will he be a king that rules the nation? But he's none of those. God doesn't send his spirit to fill any one of the great patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God doesn't choose to first send his spirit upon the mighty men like Moses or Joshua or David or Elijah. Instead, God in his infinite wisdom chooses first to fill Bezalel the builder with his spirit. We read in verses three and five, I filled him with the spirit of God for what purpose? To devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. Bezalel, the first man to have the Spirit of God poured out on him, was not a priest, he was not a Levite, he was not a prophet, he was not a judge, he was not a king, he was not a wise man. He was an artist. He was a craftsman. He was a creative And it's so interesting that God chooses to send his Spirit upon this man, Considering in the life of Israel, we would assume that the Spirit would come upon those who deal with spiritual things, deal with holy things. Why is this artist getting the Spirit? And we learn a very valuable lesson here, which kind of confronts us and it corrects us. The Holy Spirit doesn't just work in the supernatural and the extraordinary. The Spirit operates very comfortably in the realm of the natural and the ordinary. You know, can you admit this? When you think of the Spirit and you think of the Spirit filling a person, don't you tend to think of some dramatic, extraordinary type event? When we think of the Spirit filling a person, we think of sort of like divinely intervening the kingdom of God, breaking into the world kind of activity. And that makes sense. You read about the judges and you read of Samson. You know, Samson had the Spirit of God fill him and then he took the jawbone of a donkey and he crushed a thousand men. 
We think of the spirit of God in Ezekiel that comes across a valley of dry bones. And when the spirit rushes upon them, the bones begin to become life. And out of that bone, out of that valley comes an exceedingly great army. We think of Pentecost and how the disciples were gathered and praying when the spirit of God rushed upon them, all of them began speaking in languages that they never knew before. We think of Peter and how he's taken into custody and imprisoned by these Jewish leaders. And this common uneducated man begins speaking an incredible boldness that Acts tells us he astounded all of them. We think of Stephen, who was so filled with the spirit of God that when they were ready to kill him, he looked up at heaven and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And into the Father's hands, he committed his spirit. When we think of the spirit of God filling a person, don't you think of these extraordinary supernatural testimonies? And that's why when we get to Exodus 31, and we read the spirit of God come filling a man, and he doesn't pick up a jawbone, and he doesn't stand mightily and defiantly before people ready to kill him. He picks up his sewing kit, needle and thread, hammer and chisel. God looks at Bezalel and says, him. Verse 30, verse one. See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri. And what we see is this man who was an artist, a creative, a craftsman, a woodworker. He now filled with the spirit of God does the most common and ordinary things, but now he does it in the service of God and the service of his people. So all of that, let's take a step back and think for a second. What are the implications of this? You're, you're an Israelite. Right? Imagine you are an Israelite, not an Israeli, an Israelite. So you're uh, 3,000 years ago. Okay, you're an Israelite. And in your life, when you walk out, the way your camp is organized, everything is centered around the tabernacle. Your whole life, your whole religious life, civil life, is based around the tabernacle, this tent of meeting where the holy God comes to dwell with an unholy people. All of your life is centered around that, which means then those who work in the temple, the priests and the Levites, they're central to your life as well. They're the most important people in one sense to the life of Israel. In fact, they're so important that they're a selected group. If you want to be a Levite, if you want to be a priest, if you want to have any dealings with the tabernacle, you need to be from the tribe of Levi. No other group can operate and work in their tabernacle. And so God says, these guys are so important. He takes priests, Aaron and his sons. He sets them apart. He consecrates them. He ordains them. He anoints them. And he pours out oil. And the whole anointing with oil is a representation that the spirit of God has fallen upon him. And into this situation, this is your life. The temple is that central. The priests and the Levites are that important. Into this, for the very first time, God shows up and he sends his Holy Spirit, the spirit of God. And he fills not Aaron and not his sons and not the Levites, but he fills this craftsman, this ordinary man with ordinary abilities, called to an ordinary task. And you're thinking, he's not even from Levi. Because verse 2 tells us, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, was from the tribe of Judah. And his assistant, Aholiab, wasn't from Levi either. It says, I've appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And you get these people who are filled with the spirit, who aren't even the Levites, who aren't even the priests. What is happening? What is happening? 
God is dignifying the work and the service of all Israel. That's what's happening. God is dignifying the work and service of all Israel, not just this one tribe. Yeah, the priesthood was important and central, but God doesn't want his people to think, oh, only the Levites and the priests are important. You see, by sending his spirit at this moment, in this occasion, God is going to set up a wonderful precedent. And that's this, the division of roles and responsibilities, the various roles and responsibilities you're called to do is not a matter of hierarchy and not a matter of significance. That division of roles and responsibilities is only a division of labor. It's not a division of who's important and who's not important. It's not a division of who's more important and who's less important. And that's why God chooses to send his spirit, not upon Aaron, who's going to make sacrifices in the most holy place. He sends his spirit upon the man who's going to build furniture and make utensils and sew together yarn and linens. And of course, God could have just told all the Levites to do it. You guys are the ones I chose. It's your job. This is your task. Don't mess it up. But in his infinite wisdom, he decides to incorporate and involve everybody. Everybody's work, everybody's participation was necessary. God ordained that the ministry done for him involve and include everybody's skills and everybody's services. So then, Here's the question. What does any of this mean for us? What is this story, this little obscure episode, mean for you and me, believers in the new covenant and in the age of the Spirit? Here's what this means. Every single person now filled with the Spirit of God is called and equipped to serve God and minister to his people. Every single person filled now with the Spirit of God is called and equipped to serve God and minister to his people. In Christ's church, there is no hierarchy of serving God. There are no levels of that's really important and that's not important. They're really important and they're not so important. The only division is one of labor, a separation of roles and responsibilities. You know why? Because every believer in this room who has the Holy Spirit of God in them is called to serve. That's an expectation that falls on every Christian. And I know sermons like these aren't popular because you don't want to be told that you have a responsibility in this church, that you have a responsibility among the people of God, that you have a responsibility to serve the Lord. But if you have the gift of the Spirit, you have the gift of that responsibility. Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. Let me read it for you. Chapter 12, he writes this. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There's one Spirit, but there are different callings. There are different gifts. There's one Spirit, but there are different roles and responsibilities. You know, I, as a pastor, I'm called to labor and serve God in a certain way. But as a Christian, so are you. You have a ministry entrusted to you. You have things entrusted to you, things to be responsible for, things to do and to do well. And so we both serve God because we both have his Spirit in us. You know, the scriptures make it clear. It seems like there's a group of elders called uniquely to preach and teach and administer the sacraments. 
But the ministry of prayer, for example, is a ministry given to all of us, a ministry to be exercised and used by all Christians. I find it strange when churches insist, oh, the pastor or the elder needs to pray for this meal. I often pray that my lunch gets bigger by the time I finish my prayer. It's never bigger. I often pray all these types of things, but it's not the case. You know what? If a, if a pastor prays for the meal and there's dry chicken at the end of it, the chicken won't taste better. The only thing I found, the only power that the pra- uh, pastor has in prayers, I've noticed is this. Uh, when a pastor prays over the food, the food that was once warm, somehow by the end of it becomes cold. That's the only power of the pastor's prayer. But other than that, prayer is a ministry that belongs to every spirit-filled Christian. My, my point is this. Every believer now in the new covenant is filled with the spirit of God, which means you are filled and equipped and called now to serve him and serve others. And so to every Christian in this room belongs the ordinary New Testament commands to counsel one another, to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to build one another up, to hold one another accountable, to share each other's burdens, to disciple each other, even to rebuke one another. We see an example of this when Paul writes in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. To do what? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Filled with the Spirit, exhort one another, admonish one another, encourage one another. It's a ministry that belongs to you. You see that there were things that Aaron the priest was called to do and there are things that he couldn't do. And there are also things that Bezalel, the builder, was called to do and couldn't do. You know, in Christ's church, there are things that uh, ordained leadership can do. And there are things that they can't do. There are things that you, now filled with the Spirit of God, are called to do. In fact, you know, I praise God because there are many things that I can't do, and there are many things that I could do but would not really do well. But I praise God knowing that there are many of you in here who, now filled with the Spirit of God, are called to do so many of these things that I can't do, and you can do far better than I ever could. Ministry belongs to the saints, not just to the leadership. And so part of growing up in the faith, part of growing up and maturing in discipleship means that you cast off, you discard these assumptions that the business of of the ministry belongs only to church officers or to staff members or to seminary students or to interns. I mean, praise God, we have so many of them, but the ministry doesn't belong to them or to us. It belongs to the people of God. You need to stop thinking, oh, well, I'm just an ordinary Christian. So I just show up and I worship. I'm an ordinary Christian. No friends, if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, there's nothing ordinary about you. Nothing at all. But so many people use the guise of I'm an ordinary Christian as an excuse to just perpetually come to church and just receive, just feed me, just feed me and I want to receive. There is no spiritual gift of receiving. There is no ordinary Christian. There is only selfish consumers in the church. And so you gotta understand, it's this kind of attitude that actually is an obstacle for the way in which God intends to work in the church and in the world. God decided, not lazy pastors, not overworked staff, God decided that it was his plan to send his spirit upon believers so that they would jointly do ministry together. It's hinted at in Exodus 31. 
but it's fulfilled in Jesus. Because what happens when Jesus comes? Jesus comes, and the gospel works in two parts. On the one hand, the gospel tells us Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That Jesus came because he loved us. And seeing us in our sins, he took that on the cross. And on the cross, he died. And through his shed blood, he forgives us, he restores us, and he reconciles to God. And so, because he died, forgiveness, justification, adoption, eternal life, these are all gifts that God lavishes upon us. He loves to give gifts upon us. But the second part of the gospel says he didn't just go on a cross and die and give you those gifts, that he was buried, rose again, and ascended into heaven. Why? So that from heaven, he now gives and lavishes gifts. What gifts does he give? Well, on the cross, he gave us salvation. From heaven, he gives us his spirit. That's a gift too. You have the gift of the spirit now in you. He seals you. He secures you. He fills you. He indwells you. He empowers you. He equips you. We got to understand that the gifts that Jesus gives us are wonderful and they're wide ranging. So now having the gift of the spirit living in us, equipping us and calling us and sending us out, the question is, how are you using your spiritual gifts? How are you serving God and ministering to others? Because it's Ephesians 4 where Paul writes that Christ gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the teachers and shepherds to do ministry so that everyone else can just come to church one hour a week, worship and go home after they eat a nice lunch. It's not what Ephesians 4 says. But Christ gave these gifts to the church, the shepherds and the teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Dear friends, if you are a spirit-filled believer here this morning, you are called and equipped to do the work of ministry. The responsibility to bless and build up the body lies in your hands. Ministry is not the supernatural work of an ordained few. Ministry is the ordinary spiritual work of all Christians. So how do you do that? What is the work of ministry you're called to do? Maybe it's to be committed to a community group, to foster community. Maybe it's to walk with one another in suffering and in struggles. Maybe the work of ministry you're called to do is to speak words of life and truth into one another's lives. Maybe it's to welcome strangers by extending God's loving hospitality. Maybe the work of ministry you're called to do is to look out and notice the one of the 99 who has strayed. Instead of just noticing and turning away, you go after them. Maybe the work of ministry is that you go up to people and you say, how can I pray for you? And you pray for them. And then the next week you go up and say, well, how did that turn out? Here's how you got to think about it. Jesus loved the church. He loved the church so much that he sacrificed his life. He gave his life so that we would be forgiven and made right with God. He loved the church so much. He loved the church so much that he not only died and gave up his life, he loved the church so much that he raised, was raised from the dead. He sent into heaven and he sent his spirit into each and every one of you so that you might now be an expression of his love in the way that you serve one another, in the way that you walk with one another, in the way that you care for one another, in the way that you minister to one another. Jesus loves the church so much that he sent his spirit into you to do the work of ministry. So now you are an expression. You are an extension of Christ's love to the church. Can you believe this? You are the plan Jesus set in place for the church to be blessed and built up. There is no plan B. 
It would have been far easier if Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and then just stuck around and visited church to church, evaluating sermons, encouraging people, leading community groups, doing discipleship. That would have been far easier. But in his infinite wisdom, he poured out his spirit and called and equipped us to do the work of ministry. So then rather than looking to the people on your left and right going, well, what are you doing for me? How are you blessing and building me up? You now have eyes to look at others and say, what am I doing to build and bless you up? In the ways the Spirit is living in me and has equipped me and called me, how can I build up this body? How can I bless its members? And going back to, to Exodus 31, God equipped Bezalel and Oholiab and various men. And, and if we read in Exodus 35, he equipped the women as well with abilities and intelligence and knowledge of creative artistry. And then they used that specific skill, that gift, that ability they had to complement, not compete, but to complement the work of the priests and the Levites. In tandem, they worked together. The priests worked in the temple. These men worked on the temple, but together they served God and ministered to one another. And so with that, we must think and look if God has graced us with salvation and graced us with his spirit, what are the ways in which with our unique giftings and abilities we're called to serve? Because that's what a spirit-filled Christian looks like. Not ecstatic emotional experience, not just personal piety and learning more and more truth, but actually beginning to bless and build up because that is the call. So let me end with just three concluding thoughts, dear friends. First, some of you need to begin asking God and, and others and even yourself this question. What abilities, intelligence, and knowledge has God given me by his spirit? What are the unique ways he has gifted and equipped me? And so how can I use that to build others up? In this way, God can turn complainers in the church to contributors in the church. God, I see this. You, you built me in this way. I, I'm passionate that this isn't being addressed in the church because I have such a desire for it. Well, dear friends, perhaps the Lord has gifted you that so that you may address it. What are you doing? Second question. Uh, some of you are looking for ways to grow in Christ. You want to grow as a Christian, but you're doing it in the wrong way because you're thinking this way. I want to grow as a Christian. I want to grow in faith. So how can I receive more? when perhaps the wisdom of God is, I want to grow as a Christian. I want to mature in faith. So how can I begin serving? Because the spirit of God that's living in you is the spirit that wants to do a work through you. He's not just a hungry spirit with a big appetite, but he's a giving, serving spirit. So maybe you need to grow by serving. And if you serve, perhaps this will unleash much spiritual growth in your life. And third and last, uh, some of you need to stop seeing ministry as only a responsibility of a select few in the church. Ministry is every Christian's responsibility, including yours. Meaning ministry is yours to be committed to. Ministry is also yours to take ownership of. Yeah, there are certain things, roles and responsibilities, labors in the church that maybe you need specific training for, specific callings for. But for every one or two or three of those, there are a hundred things that Bible commends for us as spirit-filled Christians to live out, to serve God, and to bless others. The Bible says the work of ministry is for all the saints of which you are in Jesus Christ. And so as we end, Exodus 31 gives us a preview of what it would look like if the Spirit of God were to fill uh, men and women to serve him. And that preview is fulfilled 
now in Jesus. We live in its reality. What was momentous then, extraordinary then, is now the experience we all share. Filled with the Spirit of God, we serve Him, we minister to others in order to bless and to build up the body of Christ. Let's pray.